You're listening to True Crime P.I., an investigative podcast that explores unsolved, missing, and unidentified persons cases from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Welcome to True Crime P.I. I'm your host, Dana Pohl. In the United States, there are more than 200,000 unsolved, missing, murdered, and unidentified persons cases. In order for justice to be served, these cases need to be shared. So what are we waiting for? Let's solve a cold case. Investigating missing persons cases from the 70s, 80s, and 90s is challenging for many reasons. For too many years, law enforcement approached missing persons cases with a less-than-urgent, let's-wait-and-see attitude. Because the majority of missing people return home on their own, many in law enforcement thought that waiting to take a report was a better use of department resources. Just how long they chose to wait varied drastically from department to department. Some police departments told concerned family members that a person, including a child, had to be missing for 72 hours, while others accepted reports after 24 or 48 hours. It took decades for law enforcement to realize the importance of the first 48 hours. In part, this is why so many older cases remain unsolved. The disappearance of Sandra K. Powell is one of these cases. In March of 1987, 17-year-old Sandra Powell disappeared from her South Bend home without a trace. Days earlier, Sandra testified in court as a witness in a homicide trial. Sandra is presumed dead, but her family is desperate for answers. If you know anything about the disappearance of Sandra Powell and contact Crime Stoppers, you could receive a cash reward of up to $1,000. Submit a secure tip online at southbendareacrimestoppers.com or call 800-342-STOP. In South Bend, call 288-STOP. On March 15, 1970, Frances McCoy gave birth to a baby girl and named her Sandra. Sandra and her siblings, Barbara, Tammy, and Tom, lived on Camden Street on the far west side of South Bend, Indiana. At the time of her disappearance, Sandra attended Washington High School. I wish I could tell you more about Sandra's childhood, what her favorite color was, what she wanted to be when she grew up, and what she was like as a daughter, a sister, and a friend. But unfortunately, I don't have that information. I can tell you that Sandra was an African-American teenager with black hair and brown eyes, who stood five foot five inches tall and weighed about 130 pounds. If you Google Sandra's name, you will find a picture of her taken in 1987 and two age-progressed images created by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. These images depict Sandra at the age of 32 and 45. What catches my eye in each of these images is Sandra's beautiful smile and her perfect dimples. In the original photo from 1987, Sandra's hair is short and cut close on the sides. She is wearing a headband, a beaded necklace, and chunky 80s-style earrings. This photo reminds me of a picture of myself taken in 1985. My hair was short like Sandra's, and I was wearing a headband and earrings. These 80s fashion trends were definitely unique, and I must admit... Sandra wore this style far better than I did. These photos can be found on my True Crime PI Facebook group. 
Place is important in every story, and so I did a little research and learned that South Bend is located along the St. Joseph River, about five miles south of the Michigan border. Studebakers were once manufactured here, and the University of Notre Dame calls South Bend home. I dug a little deeper to find out what it was like to grow up in South Bend in the 1980s. This research led me to several Facebook pages and groups where countless posters nostalgically recall the businesses, bakeries, stores, and restaurants that have come and gone. Many also mention concert venues and theaters in and around South Bend. Several popular bands, including REO Speedwagon, Heart, Molly Hatchet, and Def Leppard, performed at these venues in 1987. But Sandra wouldn't have the opportunity to attend any of these concerts because she went missing on March 11, 1987, just four days short of her 17th birthday. The details about her disappearance are sketchy at best. The following is what I have been able to piece together. The night before Sandra disappeared, she was hanging out with a girlfriend in one of the girls' bedrooms. Exactly whose bedroom is unclear. Although the media has covered this case a handful of times over the past 34 years, as far as I can tell, they have never released the name of this friend. According to an article in the South Bend Tribune, this friend told police that the night before Sandra went missing, she received a phone call. Cell phones were not common in 1987, so it is safe to assume that the call was made to a landline. Her friend explained that she didn't want to eavesdrop, so she did not listen to the conversation, nor did she know who Sandra was speaking to. As far as I can tell, there is no solid timeline detailing the days or the hours leading up to her disappearance. Sandra's mom has said that she believes the girls went to the YMCA or a health spa and somehow got separated. She also believes that this friend knows more than she is willing to share. Francis told local television station ABC 57, quote, I went to my second job and when I came home, she wasn't here, and I haven't heard from her since. Unquote. When Frances realized that Sandra was missing, she immediately contacted the city, county, and state police, and was reportedly told that they would have to wait 30 days before they could start searching, because Sandra was a teenager and may have just run away. Yes, that's right, I said 30 days. Not 30 hours, but days. This is an extreme example of the lack of urgency I mentioned earlier. Frances had no intention of waiting 30 days. Like any mother would, she took matters into her own hands. She and a friend canvassed the neighborhoods, talked to her daughter's friends, and hung missing person posters across the city. None of these friends had seen or heard from Sandra, and oddly enough, Sandra's missing posters were being taken down almost as quickly as her mother could hang them up. According to Francis, quote, It never made sense because there were other missing persons photos in the same places, and those would still be there, unquote. The South Bend Police Department classified Sandra's disappearance as a runaway case. Initially, the 30-day waiting period sounded outrageous to me, but for reasons we may never fully understand, it took another 5,445 days or 15 years for the department to reclassify Sandra's case as endangered missing. 
According to reports, all of Sandra's belongings were left behind, including the money that she had been saving. Sandra's family has never believed that she ran away. They think that she was a victim of foul play. When a person goes missing, there is more often than not a backstory, a life event, a relationship, or a connection to a situation that adds context and often confusion to the case. Sandra Powell's disappearance may or may not be related to the information I'm going to share with you, but I believe that it is possible that one or more of these events played a role in her disappearance. When Sandra went missing, she was four months pregnant. A few days before she disappeared, the baby's father dropped a bombshell. He told her he was planning to marry someone else. Francis has said that this news really hit Sandra hard. I can imagine it did. If she cared at all about the father of her unborn child, if she hoped that one day they could be a family, she must have been devastated. I assume the police interviewed this man, but I can't be sure. Neither law enforcement nor the media have released his name. Some believe that Sandra's disappearance is related to her pregnancy, while others blame a rise in criminal activity in the South Bend area. According to an article published in the South Bend Tribune, there were 16 murders reported in South Bend in 1986, nearly double the number reported in 1985. The article did not indicate that gang activity was to blame. However, a smattering of unrelated articles printed in 1985 and 1986 did mention that gang activity was on the rise and had prompted local authorities to implement curfews and create a gang task force. On June 8, 1986, less than a year before she disappeared, Sandra found herself in the wrong place at the wrong time. The information I am about to share with you was found in numerous articles published in the South Bend Tribune from 1986 through 1987. In order to connect the dots, we need to go back to June 21, 1985, when Henry Lee Jones Jr., age 24, had an argument with 28-year-old Carl Lee Wells. The argument ended when Jones shot Wells three times in the back. Wells died at the scene. At the sentencing hearing, Deputy Prosecutor Richard Nossbaum argued that based on Jones's criminal history, the judge should impose the maximum sentence for murder. He claimed that Wells' death led to a number of violent incidents on the West Side, saying, quote, We cannot blame Jones directly, but indirectly the murder of Wells can be said to be the cause for all of this. Unquote. Basically, Nossbaum believed that when Jones killed Wells, he indirectly caused another murder, the drive-by shooting of 27-year-old Wayne Mack. At 4 a.m. on June 8, 1986, Mack was standing outside of his car in front of Roselle's Royal Ribs. Sandra was sitting in the passenger seat. A blue charger pulled out of a nearby parking lot and slowed down. The sounds of gunfire filled the air. Mack was hit three times and later died at Memorial Hospital. Two witnesses identified the driver as 23-year-old Donald Peck. His brother, 22-year-old Bobby Peck, was identified as the shooter. On July 11, 1986, brothers Donald and Bobby Peck were arrested. 
Bobby was charged with the murder of Wayne Mack. Donald was charged with assisting a criminal in connection with a murder. These are the dots I mentioned earlier. The connection is what Prosecutor Nosbaum called all of this. It started when Jones murdered Wells. Wells was Donald and Bobby Peck's half-brother. Mac was Jones's brother. Mac was scheduled to testify in the trial of Henry Lee Jones. It appears that the connection was family and the motive was retaliation. In September of 1986, Donald and Bobby Peck were tried for the murder of Wayne Mack. The South Bend Tribune covered the trial. An 18-year-old woman named Tanya testified that she was standing between two cars talking to Wayne and, quote, Suddenly I heard a gunshot and I ran. I saw Wayne holding his left side, unquote. Sandra was just 16 years old when she testified at the trial. The article describes Sandra as, quote, Wayne Mack's companion that night, unquote. Not only did the article name Sandra as a witness, but it also included her testimony. Sandra stated that she was sitting in Mack's car looking out the window at Wayne and Tanya. Quote, I heard gunfire. Tanya screamed and ran. Wayne struggled to get to his car. He grabbed his side and said, I'm shot, and fell to the ground. Unquote. Sandra said she thought she heard four shots. Neither of the girls could identify the shooter. But several other witnesses testified that Bobby was the trigger man and his brother was the driver. One witness said that Bobby told him he killed Mac. After Bobby confessed to the witness, he threatened him. Several other witnesses were also threatened. Francis told reporters that Sandra received threats from an unknown person before and during the trial. The last paragraph of a September 4, 1986 Tribune article entitled To Tag Bobby Peck as Mac Gunman reads as follows, quote, County police have been providing extra security around the courthouse during the trial to avert possible trouble. A couple of witnesses have been kept in protective custody, unquote. I don't know if Sandra was a protected witness, but what I do know is the South Bend Tribune printed the name and testimony of a minor. My undergraduate degree is in journalism and communications, and it has always been my understanding that releasing the name of a minor is not a legal issue, but it is an ethical one. Many years have passed since I earned my degree, so I thought I would brush up on the subject. This is what I found on the Student Press Law Center's website. In a unanimous 1979 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Smith v. Daily Mail that the First Amendment protects the rights of journalists to use the names of minors in newsworthy stories as long as the information is lawfully obtained and truthfully reported. Legally, the paper was within its rights, but was their decision to identify Sandra ethical was it responsible? This statement from accountablejournalism.org sums up the rules that should be followed when reporting on minors. The dignity and rights of every child are to be respected in every circumstance. In all stories in which a child has been involved in a crime, either as a witness, victim, or perpetrator, the child's identity should not be revealed, either directly or indirectly. Based on what I just read, Sandra's identity should have been protected. 
Did releasing her name and printing her testimony put her in danger? Unfortunately, we may never know the answer to this question. In the end, Bobby Peck was convicted of murdering Wayne Mack. His brother Donald was acquitted of all charges and released. On September 28, 1986, Bobby Peck was sentenced to 60 years in prison. Without a doubt, the year prior to Sandra's disappearance was a rough one. She witnessed the murder of a friend, received threats, testified at trial, became pregnant, and was told by the father that he was planning to marry someone else. Did any of these events cause her disappearance? Authorities have never been able to answer this question. With very little to go on and few leads, Sandra's case went cold until suddenly in 1997, the department received a tip that Sandra may have been an actress in adult films. Frances was desperate to find her daughter, so she asked her grown children to help her view these films. Each of them watched film after film, but not one of them saw Sandra. According to the police, the best lead they ever received was when a woman who knew Sandra reported that she saw her on an episode of Soul Train. Soul Train was an American music and dance television program, which aired from October 2, 1971 through March 27, 2006. For those of you who don't remember Soul Train, the set looked like a dance club. Popular artists and bands performed their current hits as cameras captured the audience members dancing around the floor. According to reports, this individual thought she saw Sandra dancing on the show. The South Bend Police Department made several attempts to obtain the video, but unfortunately, they were unable to do so. In 2003, someone claiming to be Sandra's father contacted Michigan authorities and said that Sandra had been admitted to a psychiatric hospital in Detroit. This lead was investigated and proven to be false. It is hard to imagine the pain the not knowing has caused Sandra's family over the past 34 years. In 2007, Francis said, I hope that one day Sandra will walk through the door and say, Hi, Mom, I'm home. With each passing year, Francis realizes that this may never happen. In an effort to learn more about Sandra's case, I contacted the South Bend Police Department and spoke with Sergeant David Young, who leads the Major Crimes Unit, which includes missing persons. I specifically wanted to know if there were any new leads in Sandra's case. Sergeant Young explained that he couldn't discuss leads with me because Sandra's case is an open and active investigation. Open and active can mean different things to different people, so I asked Sergeant Young to explain. He said, quote, Every missing person's case, including Sandra's, is assigned to a detective in the unit. Department policy requires that the detective revisit these cases once a year. However, most of my detectives review their cases every six months, unquote. I mentioned that it has been 34 years with very few leads and asked if there might be additional information that could be released to the public. Sergeant Young said that it might be possible to share portions of interviews conducted at the time of Sandra's disappearance, but he did not actually commit to doing so. 
I truly believe that releasing something new might jog the memory of someone somewhere. It may also inspire more media coverage. The most recent coverage I could find on Sandra's case was posted on South Bend ABC 57's website. This post is dated October 21, 2014, and reads, Family asking for help, finding missing daughter. Francis is pictured holding an age-progressed photo of Sandra. In this article, Francis said, quote, I try to go along day by day, just thinking that she's out there someplace. Everybody says give it up and admit she's dead. But I don't do that. I still have hope. Unquote. After 34 years, Sandra's story feels terribly incomplete. Because Sandra was classified as a runaway for 15 years, her dental records were destroyed before they could be obtained by law enforcement. According to the Doe Network, familial DNA is on file and available for comparison. We all know people don't just disappear. Someone knows something. Someone heard or saw something. If that someone is you, please contact the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST or Michiana Crime Stoppers at 1-800-342-7867. These numbers can be found in the show notes along with links to all of my sources. As always, it is my belief that together we can help find the missing, give the unidentified back their names, and provide answers to families who have been forced to carry the unbearable burden of not knowing. Next time on True Crime PI. If you are anything like me, when someone says Nick you think of age progressions and missing persons posters. But the truth is, Nick Mick does so much more. Join me as I talk with John Bishkoff, Vice President, Missing Children Division, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Discover the role Nick Mick plays when a child goes missing, their relationship with law enforcement, how they turn data into solutions, and the support they offer families. Don't miss this episode. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter, like our True Crime PI Facebook page, and join our Facebook group to discuss the case featured in each episode. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it. Ratings and reviews attract listeners and ultimately result in more exposure for these cases. Visit my website at truecrimepi.com to suggest a case, and if you're feeling generous, click on the Buy Me a Coffee link to support this podcast. Thank you for listening. True Crime PI is written and edited by Dana Pohl. Theme music, CD Streets, and Come Out and Play, written and performed by the very talented Darren Curtis at darrencurtismusic.com.